0: And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist Gary Machuta. Welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today, kicking off a week in apologetics, and uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Sorry about that. Uh, Some weird technical problems, but I'm on the air, and uh, we are doing our thing. In fact, we got a great show in store for us because uh, we're going to talk about Precious Blood of Jesus. And from a very interesting angle, uh, the, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Christ, it has different meanings between Catholics and Protestants, and especially has a different meaning in terms of worship, obviously. And so we're going to talk about that from that angle with our good friend, Matt Swaim. who will be joining us on the other side of the break. We're going to look at Catholic and Protestant worship, focusing on the role of the blood of Christ and how different they are. And so that's going to be a ton of fun. Uh, That's coming on the other side of the break, by the way. On this side of the break, we're going to do what we always do here. We are going to sharpen our critical thinking skills with our Finding the Fallacy segment. Today's Finding the Fallacy is the appeal to moderation, and we're going to meet the early church father actually it's not exactly a father it's a document no surprise there if you've been following the show in these segments uh, so it's the document known as the didache or the teaching of the 12 apostles very early church document uh very interesting one loaded with lots of um very important information for establishing that the catholic church goes all the way back to the beginning so we need to know what is the didache. We also need to know uh, how to detect fallacies, in this case, to appeal to moderation. And uh, so that's what we're going to do, folks, on this side of the break. But before we do that, I want to welcome all of you to the show, beginning with our live stream audience and all of you listening on radio around the country and also via podcast around the world. Welcome aboard, everybody. It's great to have you on board in the dojo uh getting ready to uh you know become defenders of the faith sharpen our skills and so forth hope everybody had a great weekend uh here uh I've been busy as you know this week uh there is a very important um conference actually two very important conferences in Steubenville, Ohio at the Franciscan University of Steubenville It's the Applied Biblical Studies Conference, which is uh, fueled by the St. Paul Center for um, Applied Biblical Studies, Uh, Scott Hahn at the helm there. And there is also the Defending the Faith Conference, which (laughs) I've been attending. I think the first Defending the Faith Conference I attended was the second one they did. They did one on New Age... uh, I think that was the one I went to, but there was only one before that. I think it was on justification, but I didn't even know the Franciscan University of Steubenville existed. So uh, anyway, I was in apologetics just starting out, and I found a photo of myself, embarrassingly young. And uh, yeah, so I've been going pretty much ever since. There's a few conferences I missed. But I, I habitually go to the defending the faith just because it's awesome to rub elbows with other people who are out there in the field, sharing the faith, defending the faith, promoting apologetics in the parishes. And it's just uh, a great time. It's, it, I loved it because it recharges your spiritual ba- uh, batteries. Because in per- regular parish life, let's face it, it's an uphill battle. And uh, especially back, you know, back then, uh, the people were outwardly hostile to apologetics, if if not completely ignorant of it. Now it's a little different, but still, you know, it, it gets tiring being in the field. It gets tiring when your best friends are the anti-Catholics that you discuss the faith with Um you, I think everybody needs to periodically take some time, recharge the spiritual batteries and attend a conference like that or, or one of the virtual most powerful conferences, uh, you know, to get you equipped, recharge your spiritual batteries so that you can go out into the field. You, you need those things. So anyway, that's a long story to a, a short comment, I guess, because uh, I'm going to be delivering two talks at the Applied Biblical Studies Conference, which is right before the Defending the Faith Conference. So. Been busy all weekend putting the finishing touches on my talks. I also have a manuscript that's just about to go into editing. So it's been super busy here. But nevertheless, uh, it's all joy. Because uh, the reason I get up in the morning, as you, is to make Jesus better known and loved. So uh, it's it's awesome that he's called us to this work. Um, By the way... uh, since I'm on the topic, I'll give you the official dojo mailbox, which is questions at com, and, and also, if you're going to the Applied Biblical Studies Conference, uh, definitely stop me. You can't miss me. I'll be the tallest guy there. I guarantee it. I have yet to find a person taller than me at any conference I've attended. Uh, just find the tallest person there, and uh, please come up, say, hey, I listen to you on Virtual Most Powerful Radio, and I uh, appreciate the program. Uh, It'd be great to meet you. And I I don't know, I'm going to try to stay at least to maybe the beginning of the defending the faith. I I don't know how long I'll be there, but I'd love to meet anybody who's out there. Like I said, it's great to rub elbows, talk to people who are on fire for the faith. So um, that's my plans for the week. And let's go to our Finding the Fallacy. Enough about me. Let's get to the important stuff. Finding a fallacy, today he's finding the fallacy is the appeal to moderation. Uh, the appeal to mar- moderation also known uh, as the argument to moderation or um, appealing to the middle. Um, it's also known as the false compromise, the argument from middle ground, and the golden mean fallacy. So there's a lot of AKAs to it. Basically it's this, it's the fallacy that the truth is supposedly always a compromise between two opposing positions. And, of course, the word underline there is always a compromise between two opposing positions. The, the force of this fallacy is generally so. I mean, orthodoxy is usually found in a middle between two extremes. Um, however, that's not true in every single case, right? There, is, there are some cases, some uh, opposing positions, that there really is no middle ground. And trying to to make something seem as if it's the middle ground, in order to make it acceptable, would be to commit this particular fallacy, which is the appeal to moderation. All right, um, let's meet the early church father for today. Is the Didache? Like I said, it's not an individual. But a very important early church document uh, translation would be basically the teaching of the 12 apostles. The Didache was first published in 1883, following its discovery by uh, uh Brynios, who was the Metropolitan of Nicomedia. He found an 11th century manuscript of it. Upon its publication, it was quickly observed that large parts of the work had previously been extant as quotations within other works. Uh, but it has not been recognized as such until the publication. For example, almost all of the Greek text of the Didache was recoverable from an already known seventh book of the Apostolic Constitutions originating in Syria in the 4th century. Since Berenius' discovery of the complete text, numerous other finds have been made in fragmentary text and translations of the Didache, in the first complete translation in a Georgian uh, version, fragments are now extant in Latin, Coptic, Ethiopic, and Syriac, along with the complete translation in Georgian and, of course, the complete Greek text. Now, I I, I want to pause there because that is something that I think should be very reassuring to us, that the early church in its faith is so constituted that we can still have and access uh, works of antiquity that are lost through the works of later early church fathers. Like uh, Jurgen's Faith Early Fathers here says, with the case with the Didache, uh, we actually never lost the Didache, at least uh, not most of it. It was present in other works as quotations or Um, perhaps even copied word for word, as is the case with the Apostolic Constitutions. So we always had it. The thing was, we didn't know that the Didache was a freestanding, complete document. And it's really cool, because once we discovered that connection, then we looked at all the other writings that that are extant, and we find out that, wow, there's all these little bits and pieces of the Didache being quoted in the early church that You know, it wasn't cited as coming from this particular work, but it must have. So um, I I think that's amazing that, you know, that kind of puts the lie this idea that uh, somebody could go back in antiquity and destroy all the text and we'll never know. You know, there could be missing data about Jesus or something like that. It's just not possible, just like the Didache, I think, uh, proves. Another interesting fact that Juergens brings up is that the current scholarship of the Didache has an hypothesis where uh, the Didache from chapter one through to end of chapter six may originally have been a Jewish work uh, for instruction of Gentile uh, proselytes to Judaism and maybe even of Essene origin. And uh, that would place that Jewish text around, um, uh, I think, 140 A.D. And that is our early church father for today, the Didache. Coming up next, we're going to chat with Matt Swain, talk about Catholic and Protestant worship around the precious blood of Christ. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888 526 Two one five one. Here's Gary, and welcome back, everybody. Hands on Apologetics and uh, Catholics. We are familiar with the precious blood of Jesus, it's such an important component in, in l- practically everything we do. Not just devotional, but in terms of worship, the blood of Christ is also very important in Protestant theology. And when you put the two together, especially in, in the realm of worship. Uh, some very interesting comparisons and contrasts comes out, and to help us explore that, we have our good friend Matt Swain with us. Matt, as you know, grew up in a strong Christian family, attended United Methodist Nazarene and Free Methodist congregations along the way, converted to Catholicism, and he has been working very hard at the Coming Home Network staff since 2016, and uh, where he works on coordinating and promoting new videos. Uh, web content and other media and he also has a, a, f- a fantastic show in my humble opinion along with another familiar guest uh ken hensley with uh on the journey with matt and ken so uh, matt swain welcome back to hands on Apologetics.
1: hey gary it's always a pleasure good to see you how are you my friend
0: oh uh, i'm doing fine doing fine uh it's just one of those days you know <laughs> Coming off the weekend, it, it's you. hard to get it back into the swing of things. But I'm doing great. Um, yeah. So, uh, did I get that right, or did you change titles? Because in the middle of reading, I realized you might have a, you might have a different title now at Coming Home. Network. Okay.
1: So I have two different title things to, to update you on. One is that um, I'm director of outreach at the Coming Home Network now which means uh, almost nothing in terms of change of responsibilities. It just means we've shuffled around a little things. So you can call me whatever you want to, Gary Machuda. Okay. Um, the second thing is is I have a slight change of title, at least for the next several weeks of On the Journey. It's not On the Journey with Matt and Ken. For the next few weeks, it's going to be On the Journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny, because Kenny Burchard is joining oh, awesome. us for a series that we're going to be doing on Mary, and the first episode of that uh, drops Uh, tomorrow, where Ken Hensley and Kenny Burchard start off by talking about how they used to preach about Mary when Hensley was a Baptist pastor and Burchard was a Pentecostal pastor. So (laughs) those are your updates. I think you got all the updates. That
0: sounds awesome. That sounds awesome. And all three of you are frequent guests here. So,
1: Yeah, I know. uh, It's like you guys, we're in the rotation. It's like your bullpen.
0: Yeah, there you go. Yeah, my three leadoff hitters from the Coming Home Network. All right. Awesome. Yeah, so that, that would be fascinating because you guys come from three very different... Very different backgrounds. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, But I have a feeling probably on Mary, it's going to come... You guys are going to be very similar. I'm it at- is going to be
1: very similar. Um, yeah. I, after recording one episode already, which, again, we'll release later this week, it, it's going to be very similar. Uh, what's different is the degrees to which uh, we were... Uh, distanced from the catholic teaching so um i just thought it was you know dumb it wasn't even on my radar hensley was kind of the same way bouchard though bouchard would do things like hey raise your hand if you're at this service this morning and you you come from a catholic background well it says right here in the word you're wrong you know like, <laughs>
0: yeah. he
1: was more he was more antagonistic than Ken and i than, than Hensley and I put together. So
0: yeah, right, right, um, yeah. Well,
1: that's kind of the the Pentecostal personality type, you know, a little more confrontational.
0: Yeah, that's so, true. Um, that's true. Yeah. So uh, yeah, good stuff. Yeah, I, I probably should have said spoiler alert, but uh, but uh, hey, that's there's no there's
1: nothing to be spoiled. I didn't spoil anything. Actually, I take wait, I take that back. I did spoil something. We're all Catholic now, so. <laughs>
0: that's your <laughs> okay there you go there's that's your spoiler uh, there the spoiler alert right there yeah. very good yeah so uh, when i saw your topic for today i thought wow i never actually thought about how these different lines of uh you know thought coincide and contrast but you know this idea of the blood of christ is uh so important for catholics and protestants and it really um when it comes to worship, it takes on two very different, yet sort of similar, you know, aspects to each other. So I I love this topic. Yeah, so I uh,
1: I am very curious, uh, you know, to, to kind of hear your take on this. Because some of this will be, like, completely things that you know about, and some of it will, will not. So one of the things that I think sometimes um, Catholics can— you know, have a, an impression of, uh, of Protestants is that uh, for them it is is merely an act of faith. Uh, it kind of doesn't matter, uh, you know, how it plays out. There's no sacraments, right? It is, uh, it is sort of a bloodless Christianity that considers Christ not to be on the cross anymore, bare crosses, right, um, that it's all said and done and it's over with. And all we're grateful for is the victory. We're grateful for the victory, victory in Jesus, right? Yeah. Um, and in some senses, that can be can be true. I didn't grow up with crucifixes. Um, I didn't grow up with depictions of Jesus on the cross um, in any of the places where I, you know, remember going up and in, in, in seeing worship. I saw a lot of, you know, Jesus maybe teaching at the Sermon on the Mount. If I saw very few paintings, and that might, that wouldn't be in the actual sanctuary. Um, At the same time, though, the more I think back on the hymns that we sang, the more I realize we talked about the blood a lot. And I mean a lot, as in we would sing about it all the time. Uh, The blood will never lose its power. Um, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Um, uh, sometimes graphically, uh, there is a fountain filled with blood, uh, drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. We sing about the blood of Jesus a lot. Are you washed in the blood? Um, and it's, it's kind of interesting. I, I sometimes wonder if, uh, by kind of refocusing on how we talk about the precious blood during the month of July, there's maybe not an opportunity there to talk uh, to uh you know our Protestant brothers and sisters um who have that, that kind of emphasis in their particular worship to to maybe uh discuss how the fulfillment of all the things they're singing about is in the Mass, right? I mean,
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the Mass, we have like the blood, <laughs> right? That yeah um that that we sing about. What you sing about all the time in my in my church growing up.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, was it Clef? Uh, Rock of Ages, I think that yeah, actually also talks about, I mean,
1: pretty much every hymn. Now, you're like... gonna make me go back and remember all the words to all these songs I haven't sang for like a thousand years.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, so there, there is uh, an emphasis, certainly within certain denominations, of uh, the blood of Christ, but. Often it seems like the blood of Christ is like an abstraction or hmm. uh, a way of, like you said, victory over sin. You know, it, it's like it's something that happened 2,000 years ago, and we can claim the power of that shed blood 2,000 years later, right? There's no yeah. immediacy uh, between the two other than that we're plugging in the Christ promises. Would that be a, a, a uh yeah. for saying that?
1: I mean, I'm thinking even of another one as you're talking, right? Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would yeah. you over evil a victory win? There's power in the blood of the lamb. There's power, power, a power in the blood of the lamb. Um, yeah, so – but, but it's that way with actually a lot of things, and not just blood, Gary, uh, when you think about it. Um, there's a lot of talk of being a pilgrim and uh, pilgrimage in a lot of Protestant – uh, hymns as well, um, or pilgrim's soul, and yet Protestants don't go on pilgrimage. Yeah, uh, I that's mean, <laughs> the they, they don't, right? Where would you right? be going, right? Uh, to an apparition of Billy Graham? I'm not sure. Like, you, bit, Protestants yeah. don't go on pilgrimage, and yet there's there's that metaphor um, as well. It is kind of interesting. So the the talk of the blood was very. Yeah. Um, prominent in my particular background uh, in the Wesleyan Holiness Movement, um, you know, the blood that will wash away your sins, right? Because one of the things that that really matters is holiness, right? It really matters to give your life over to Christ. And um, and, and there was talk of salvation, talk of uh, of even praying the sinner's prayer as being washed clean by the blood of Christ, right? Uh, you know, bring your garments before him, and he will wash you as white as snow. I actually even have for like a, a little show and tell item today. This is songs for service, a special tabernacle edition. Uh, this, is a, this is a little hymn book from like revivalist uh, Protestantism. This is a, this is a signed page by Billy Sunday, famous evangelist from that era, uh, and it's just loaded with that kind of terminology of um oh yeah pure white ribbons this one you know have you seen our badges new pure white ribbons do you want to wear one too pure white ribbons right uh you know your your ribbons that you've worn that have been washed white in the blood of the lamb but again all metaphor all metaphor Mm -hmm. and what's interesting uh is that in, in modern day praise and worship, now that that's gotten away from sort of like the classic hymnody and the, and the tent revival hymns, you know, and and where hymns aren't even like a thing, right? You don't have a hymnal. You look up and you see an overhead projector throwing words up on the wall. Um, The metaphorical language is very much kind of changed around. So Hmm. I, you know, I wonder, I mean, there are a certain group of people who would respond really well to like the precious blood, Stuff Because that's from their kind of Protestant, like, glory in Jesus kind of background. But uh, that's not really prominent in themes in, in Christian worship today. It's more like, God, you're a mighty river. Let your waters flow. You know, take us to the mountain. Lord. Like, it's all, like, geography references. Like, hmm. you know,
0: yeah.
1: praise and worship metaphors. Like, you know, uh, uh, like, wind. Right. Or like, God, you're a rock, you know, and stuff like that. It's not it's not the uh, it's not even necessarily yeah. all that Christological. Um, some of the some of the hymns that are kind of have grown to to prominence today. It's an, it's sort of an interesting shift. Um, I don't know why that is. I don't think it's because people deny the 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 efficaciousness of the passion, death and resurrection of Jesus over in Protestant land. I just think maybe people got a little squeamish. I'm not sure. We sing about blood and guts all the time. Man, Sunday night hymn sing was the worst, right? (laughs) Somebody (laughs) piano player would get up there and they'd say, all right, you know, we have our hymn sing night and somebody from the congregation would call out a number and everybody would flip to that number. The piano player would flip to that number and here's another one about blood, right? We're all (laughs) going to sing it together. And now it's more like, hey, can you play like, dude that you know the one about how jesus is like a, a wind you know and and it's more of those kind
0: of metaphors <laughs> now you played contemporary christian music Were no guys- i did
1: not gary machuda are you trying to bait me i played uh, christian punk and underground rock That's
0: okay well i was trying to be well pl- look I like amy to- grant come on yeah no i could <laughs> see you playing amy grant come on uh now, uh, for those who can't see on the radio, uh, Matt Swain is blushing at this point because is that what it is? Yeah, because uh, you know I insulted his uh, his inner punker. You said I, I was
1: basically Michael W. Smith. That's what you said.
0: <laughs> well, I'm sorry if I, I I apologize if I offended you. Uh, but oh, I you're your you get you get you a thousand strikes from me. <laughs> All right, we're chatting with Matt Swain, talking about the blood of Christ in Protestant Catholic worship. Stay tuned. This is Jesse
1: Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
0: And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Matt Swaim. Uh, very interesting topic, the blood of Christ and how it's uh, viewed in Protestant and Catholic worship. Okay, Matt, now that everybody's been on pins and needles, uh, I would think something like shed blood would be very punk-like. Uh, yes.
1: Was that Absolutely. also a
0: theme? Okay.
1: Yes. So uh, bear in mind that when I was Christian planning, in, we were actually in some ways Christian indie rock, underground, uh, Christian metal, Christian all that sort of stuff that I was involved in for, I'd say from about 1997 through about 2005. Um, it was in many ways a reaction to, against contemporary Christian music. Because we saw that as, as very much all that stuff I was kind of making fun of, like, you know, oh God, you are a mighty wind, you know, blowing through the trees and stuff. We were reading the Psalms, man, and we were seeing stuff in the Psalms that was real, right? And we were seeing, you know, kind of out, out there, um, sort of like a papered over, like a. Um, a Christianity yeah, right. that never talked about hard things. And we were like, right. well, the Bible talks about hard things, so we're going to talk about hard things, and we're going to play it loud, right? Um, and it is very much, uh, when you read through the scriptures, uh, a very—in uh, some ways, that desire for an incarnational faith uh, ended up leading me more and more towards Catholicism, right? Because uh it just is so visceral and um and deals with pain like it's like a real thing right and deals with suffering like it's a real thing and uh and Christ really does identify with us and it's not just a uh you know a pop psychology thing where we get some interesting ideas about how to be a better husband and father like maybe that's in there too but life is full of horrible things and Christ entered into the whole of it right and so uh when we were playing you know it mattered that when when Christ was shedding his blood and we were talking about it we we're like okay we bleed we serve a savior who bleeds like that matters right that matters um and in some ways uh, you know catholicism took it seriously cuz catholicism you walk into a catholic church you're more like more than likely to see like some state statue in the corner with an axe sticking out of his head right you're not going to see that in like you know Bethel Harvest Community Fellowship, right? (laughs) Right. There's a – at St. Xavier Church in downtown Cincinnati, they've got a statue in the back of St. Isaac Jogues, one of the North American martyrs whose feast we just celebrated not long ago. Now, if you don't know much about Isaac Jogues, um, he came as a Jesuit missionary from France to what's now upstate New York. And they saw him celebrating Mass and holding his fingers together with the host, right? And so they're like, we're going to put stop to that. And they chewed off his index fingers on both hands and his thumb on both hands. Yep.
0: Yeah.
1: And we, he went back and got special permission uh, to go and continue. He went back to France, came all the way back with special permission to celebrate Mass with missing fingers, right? To these yeah. people who chewed them off. And then they killed him, <laughs> right? But yeah. if you go in the back of St. Xavier Church, there's St. Isaac Jogues. With fingers missing and blood running down his forehead, right there in the church, right. And in some ways, um, a Protestant from my milieu, who you know grew up in that maybe sort of saccharine form of Christianity, and gravitated towards like the the, the more you know kind of raw Christian punk rock world would walk into a church like that and say like, man, that's so metal, <laughs> right? Like it would yeah. be like an attractive thing to them, an attractive yeah. thing to see um, a crucifix that's just vivid, right? A vivid crucifix. That's the reality of the cross right there, man, on that wall. Um, So in some senses, uh, there's, it might seem like a very large gap between Billy Sunday's song for service. Are you washed in the blood brother, you know? And like a Christian punk rocker who's like stares at that crucifix is like, that's, that's like real. There's not that big of a gulf between those two kinds of mindsets. The people who don't have anything in common with that sort of world are the people who are like wearing, you know, Hawaiian shirts to the mega church here in sort of abstractions uh yeah. projected on a wall. Um, in some ways it's like the metal heads like love this stuff. I <laughs> love the old school hymns because they're like, uh it's the reality of the blood, man. Yeah. So
0: yeah that yeah that's really good. So uh, and of course with Catholics too oddly enough we all coincide on that point because uh it really does speak to a truth right the, uh, about the efficacy of Christ's uh, sacrifice and you know the spilling of his true human blood. Yeah and I mean in some senses that's
1: uh one of the complaints that someone might have about like a you know, a big mega church preacher who's just talking about how I accept the Lord and everything is going to be amazing from here on out, right? They've Mm -hmm. kind of pushed the cross out of the picture. Um, And even a lot of Protestants, um, you know, are uncomfortable with the idea of those churches that sort of push the cross out of the picture. Um, But one of the things that, um, when I first threw this topic back at you, uh, one of the things that really stuck in my mind is that we would do Holy Communion in the various places that I was in growing up. And I was in a Methodist context and a Nazarene context, and and uh, later when I lived in my Christian punk rock commune that <laughs> we were in, sort of a Church of Christ rest- Restorationist context, um, but all of them would have had kind of a memorialist uh, perspective on Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, that um it was something you did to to remember Christ's sacrifice. I don't think I ever heard it, uh, you know, explained terribly in depth, but what I do recall about Every single one of those circumstances, and even when I went to a Christian music festival uh, that would have, you know, a Holy Communion where they'd have, like, the plastic cups with, like, the grape juice in it, and then there'd be, like, a layer of foil, then there'd be, like, a cracker, then a layer of saran wrap on top. It was, like, this, like, ready-made, packed communion that you'd get at Saturday afternoon on a music festival day um, and one of these Christian music festivals. Without fail, all of those, if someone handed that to you, right— the words they would say to you would be the body of Christ or the blood of Christ. Um, hmm. And that to me, looking back is a very fascinating thing because I don't remember as a kid ever thinking, you know, as they're passing, you know, they had sometimes these trays, right. That like had like 50 cup holders and it. it's like a tray full of juice. And you thought, Oh Lord, please don't let me spill all of this as I have to pass it down the aisle to the next person. You know, someone would pass it to you Take their cup and say the blood of Christ. And at no point it ever occurred to me growing up to say, like, really? This? Oh my goodness. Yeah. What a miracle. <laughs> right? It never it right. would never occurred yeah. to me to say that. But and yet those are the words that that um that would have been used in that right. context. Um, because that's that's the other context in which we would have heard about the blood of Christ. We would have heard. The blood of Christ washes away your sins. You know, you had your garments dipped in it, right? There's a fountain filled with it. Uh, you know, sinner, plunge yourself beneath the flow. Um, and then a person putting two and two together would say, okay, how do I do that? And then you show up on communion Sunday, and someone passes you and it says the blood of Christ. Like, a person who came from the outside might think, this was this must be what they mean by the blood of Christ, that they keep on saying, will wash away all your sins. And yet that was never... Yeah. Like, that was never meant to be the impression that we walked away with, uh, which is funny, um, looking back with the benefit of having been 17 years in the Church and thinking about this, because that's exactly the way the Catholic Church talks about it all the time, right? right. right. That's exactly the way the Catholic Church talks about the blood of Christ. As a matter of fact, the Catechism is loaded re- with references to, you know— Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and here's how we're going to do it, and here's how we do it every time we meet for Mass, (laughs) right?
0: Yeah, right. Because
1: the Church takes that reality seriously, and it's not just like a metaphor or an abstraction or something you sing about uh, in your suit and tie on a Sunday night hymn sing. It's like a real thing that you do at every single Catholic service, period.
0: Right. Yeah, the thing that struck me when uh, I was reading this topic was— well, the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. It, right. The shedding of blood is attached to sacrifice, which is seems to be a big disconnect because, uh, you know, claiming the blood of Christ, they're claiming the sacrifice to happen 2,000 years ago. But, you know, its effects is applied to me, but the, the blood isn't literally applied to me. You know what I mean? Uh, and worship sh- service definitely isn't a sacrifice, like you said. Uh, many Protestants have more of a memorial uh, understanding that they're just remembering what happened 2,000 years ago. It's n- it's not like it's actually made present, which yeah. seems like a big, big disconnect. It
1: is a huge disconnect. And in- i gotta I got to be careful that I don't go down a rabbit hole here, <laughs> because you've hit on something that is massive. And maybe this would be a good topic for November— Yeah. So part of the reason I feel like um, a lot of Protestants don't get a lot of that extra stuff that we do and they think it's idolatry, like, you know, the Mary stuff or the saint stuff or or these other things, they think that's idolatry because in their mind, uh, depending on how you were formed, praise and worship is like a musical genre. It's like a. We're going to sing some praise and worship songs. Well, technically, you don't have sacrifice as part of your Sunday mornings, so technically you're only singing praise songs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're not singing worship songs. because there's no There's no sacrifice in it. So uh, we, in the Catholic world, make a very clear distinction between the various kind of ways that you address God and the various kinds of ways you address the communion of saints. There's levels of this stuff. There's context for it. We don't call we only call one kind of thing worship, right? The kind of stuff that involves us entering into the sacrifice of Christ and presenting it back to God so he can present it back to us, and it's only involved, it only involves God, right?
0: right?
1: So if you come from one of those contexts where every time you're singing and God is involved, it's might as well be praise and or worship. It's all mixed together. Then obviously, if a catholic says anything nice about anybody in heaven (laughs) you know it's easy to conflate all those things you know together um but here's the deal um and we'll talk about this more in august when we get to the feast of saint john vianney and his catechesis on the priesthood um Mm -hmm. you know no matter how nice of a lady mary was if it had been her up on that cross that blood wouldn't have done it for you and me right? right if an angel an angel in heaven, right, had uh, suddenly take on human form, and it was an angel that got thrown up on that cross, wouldn't have done the trick. Wouldn't have done the trick, right? And when we talk about those different we, we talk about angels and Mary very differently than we talk about Christ who shed his blood, and it does something. It does everything uh, for us. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. We're chatting with Matt Swain, talking about the blood of Christ and Protestant Catholic worship. More to come right after this. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-On Apologetics. And uh, we're talking with Matt Swaim about the precious blood of Christ and and different, you know, contrasting and comparing uh, Protestant worship, Catholic worship. And, Matt, you know, it's my job to throw you off on the Oh, bring it on. But you you brought up an interesting point. Now I was thinking about those old hymns, you know, the oldie hymns that we mentioned in the beginning of the, the program. Even that's more because what you're doing is you're singing hymns about the experience of having your sins washed away in the past when you were first saved, which took place two thousand years earlier when Jesus died on the cross. So it, it's like even then with praise and worship, it's still kind of, there's still a distance, isn't there?
1: Yeah. Well, bear in mind that those of us who grew up singing those hymns did not call them praise and worship. The praise and worship movement kind of came along in like late 80s, early 90s, and it was, you know, by contrast, it was a more contemporary type of thing. Uh one, right. one thing to correct the record, by the way, I mentioned that pure white ribbons was like, you're washing yourself white in the blood. I didn't realize, I read the I read further. This is not a hymn I've been familiar with. Turns out, "Pure White Ribbons" is actually a hymn of the temperance movement, and you wear these badges. Oh, like brother brother. okay. Yeah, interesting. Um, had nothing to do with the blood of Christ. Well, maybe, maybe it was motivated by an experience of of Christ. But, but yeah, I mean, those those hymns uh, definitely had significantly more of a sacrificial focus. Um, but, and this is something that's kind of interesting. Uh, I did a. A Coming Home Network presents with a couple of guys who are both um, worship leaders, as it were—well, praise leaders—in Protestant context before they became Catholic. And um, and one of them, T.L. Putnam, who I believe you have probably had on before, um, but T.L. was talking about how, and in many ways, he—when um, he was doing music ministry as a Methodist, that was the sacrament, right? The songs that you would sing are the sacrament because that is the— um, the sensory and way the sensory way in which you encounter God. And it's through sort of auditory means. Like the music is meant to facilitate a real encounter with God. Um, It is, it is the way that God, you, you meet God through your senses. Um, Of course, when we as Catholics meet God through our senses at the mass, right? Um, It's in something we can taste and touch. Um, and for, for them, it, it was also a very subjective thing, right? If the music isn't good, then you don't that encounter doesn't, doesn't happen, right? If the music doesn't work right, then it's not there. Whereas in, in Catholicism, it's objective. You could be having a, a bad day, you could be not paying attention, you could be whatever. The blood of Christ is real, right? When the priest prays those words over the bread and the wine, it's real. It doesn't matter how you feel <laughs> that about it that yeah. day; it's real, um, and which is another kind of interesting uh, distinction between uh, Protestants and, and and Catholics, and the way that that worship can take place in various forms of Protestantism is that that blood of Christ thing is only is only real when you apply it, um, right? But even then, it's not a physical thing. There's no physical component to it; it all resides in some uh, like a transaction that happens. Um, somewhere in your will, right in the privacy of your own um, prayer, it's not like a like in Catholicism when the blood of Christ uh, is confected by the prayers of the priest over the wine. He holds it up as high as he can, <laughs> you know, in front of the room, right? To be like, yeah, let uh, see this. This this just happened, and I'm holding it up as high as I can as an offering. Uh, up to the father, but also so all y'all can see what just happened. I mean, in in some ways, it's and that that harkens so much back to the original sacrifices, right, of the Jews. Like when you read through the Old Testament instructions, there's all this stuff about like hold this up, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. Um. So the idea. A wave of the offering, office, wave it. Wave it up, north, south. Yeah. I mean, which is like essentially what the priest does with the monstrance of benediction, right? Um. But again, you know, I mentioned uh, and I wanted to to read this passage from the catechism because I mentioned how we would sing about the blood in and I'm thinking specifically of like when I was in the Church of the Nazarene or Free Methodist churches, we'd sing about the blood. Right. And uh, the way that we actually treated the blood was, you know, you'd go and you pray the prayer of repentance and then something somewhere in the ethereal realm, the blood would be, you know, applied and and you would be forgiven um, and you would sense some sort of internal uh i guess piece that that had really happened uh and then later at various points they would pass around the tray and they'd say the blood of christ but that had nothing to do with that up there that had happened right this is a separate kind of thing it's just a but that's but the catholic church puts the two and two together that uh again if you were to walk into a lot of protestant churches you'd be like oh this is all supposed to be together but the um in 1393 uh it says this The body of Christ we receive in Holy Communion is given up for us, and the blood we drink is shed for the many for the forgiveness of sins. That's straight out of the Bible, right? Um, For this reason, the Eucharist cannot unite us to Christ without at the same time cleansing us from past sins and preserving us from future sins. So the blood in communion is meant to help take away sin and guard you against sin, Right, and of course, if you're in mortal sin, you got to take that care, get that taken care of before you go up to communion. But it, you know, this is—it's clear that the same blood that washes away your sin is also meant to be, and it's clear from Paul talks about this in Second Corinthians. It's not just Jesus's words that we're interpreting. We're also supposed to drink that blood, and not just metaphorically. Um, that there is like a reality to that blood. It's not merely to be applied to our garments. It's meant to be taken into our very bodies. Um, And you have to actually do a fair amount of explaining to say that's not what the Bible says, right? But if you've never grown up, if you've only ever grown up with those two things been put in separate boxes, then it's a little bit jarring when you find out when you see the church put them together the way that they were never meant to be taken apart, like, right. The blood of Jesus saves us, the blood he shed on the cross. He also said that this is his blood. He also said we have to drink his blood. I mean, like all those things are pretty clear in the Bible. And yet, um, the Protestant experience, uh, you know, 500 years removed from the Reformation and, you know, uh, uh better than anyone, Gary, that, uh one of the things that luther had such a problem with was the the mass being talked about as a sacrifice and you take away the sacrificial element of the mass and 500 years of worship later or 500 years of whatever you call that when you take the sacrifice out of it later you know no wonder there's a whole bunch of people who have separated all these concepts out from one another and they're no longer wedded to one another the way that they were Clearly wedded to other, not only what wedded one another, not only in the scriptures, but clearly throughout the early church. I mean, you read Justin Martyr describing a mass, and it's like it's pretty much what you see when you walk into a Catholic church today in terms of how it's all set up. Um, yeah. But again, we didn't, we would have never even thought that we were taking things that are meant to be together and putting them, you know, at different sides of the room from one another.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's, it's, um, once you, uh, you know, uh, put, like you said, put it in those separate containers, uh, it's very easy to just to spiritualize things away, you know, or, and not denying not the, the power, but, you know, uh, at the same time, keeping it distant from yourself in a way, you know? Um, I don't know how to describe it better than that. But. Well, I mean,
1: you and I have been talking about it. Uh, you know, we've been going through John Locke, uh, yeah. with your, your visits on the Sunrise Morning Show, and um, about how, you know, even even Protestantism has kind of been infected by the Enlightenment to the sense that, uh, you know, what happens with me and my relationship with God is intensely personal. Um, but because of that, it's also private and invisible, Right. And it's like this invisible part of me that nobody can see but me and God, me and Jesus. Uh, you know, you're Tom T. Hall singing over in the country world that me and Jesus got our own thing going. You got Tupac over in the hip hop world saying only God can judge me. It's this inside piece, invisible piece of me that nobody else can see. That's my relationship with God. Um, and so in some ways it, it gets completely subjectivized, whereas the Catholic Church is like, hey, all you baptized people in here, look up. Something real happened. I don't know how many of you are paying attention, but the church says that this is real whether you're paying attention or not, right? right. Whether you feel it or not. It's a it's a public... Um, I mean, the Mass is like a... I mean, it's inside of a building, and the only people who can see it are the people who went into that building um, at the consecration. I mean, there are public ways that people can do the Mass, but essentially it's a... It's for everybody around to see that something real is happening with, a, with an encounter with Christ, uh, whereas you know i can walk into a room and say that that i'm a christian and you have no verification other than my own me telling you that i was right right <laughs> you know yeah i
0: mean yeah and i've heard you know lots of converts say that it, there's it's freeing to be catholic because you don't have to get yourself worked up you know for don't, the service goodness, no. in order to feel like christ was present you know it it's, it doesn't require you uh, you know like you said great music great sermon to get you um spiritually there, Christ is there, whether you feel it or not, yeah,
1: the blood is not powerful because you feel that it is powerful, yeah. right, any more than a sunset is beautiful because you feel like it's beautiful, right there's an objective beauty to the sunset, there's an objective power to the blood, and sometimes you know you don't your blood sugar's low <laughs> right, <laughs> or you're you you didn 't get a good night's sleep or you've got a headache from lack of caffeine or something and so it's not filling up your senses the way that it might in other circumstances but that doesn't diminish the reality of the blood right doesn't it's not like some people get like um organic locally sourced craft brewed baptisms that are like super high quality and other people get like you know knockoff store brand baptisms right (laughs) when it comes to the sacraments it's not like we, we give some people like diet baptism or baptism zero or some light. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, it's not like we walk up in the communion line and, 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 uh, depending on which host the priest offers to us, like, you know, somebody gets one that's like, well, that was only probably like 75% Jesus. No, like the, it's a public, like objective reality. Um, and you would see stuff, and this is the sort of the head game that went on in my particular version of Protestantism with revivalism, right? Like where you'd have a revival service where a preacher would come into town, and he'd have, we'd have, you know, uh, seven p.m. services on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and the preacher would get up, and at the end he'd have an altar call for people to come down and give their lives to Christ and rededicate, you know, be washed in the blood of the Lamb, and you know, day two'd come around and he'd say, ah, some of you didn't really get washed the last time. and you know, I mean, there's a head game with that in the church they're like no every mass it really is the blood yeah
0: yeah awesome well matt hey thank you so much for coming on the show we appreciate it thank you as always all right matt swaim sunrise morning show also coming home network chnetwork.org. check out his great stuff there wow the hour is gone coming up next high impact catholic talk coming at you with the terry and jesse show thank you so much for tuning in God willing, we'll be back again. Do this thing called hands-on Apologetics. Bye, bye, everyone.